Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Finally, we are back with part two covering Frazier Baker. Sorry for the delay this week. Sometimes life gets crazy. When we left off in part one, we were going back into Frazier Baker's tree. In this episode of Post Office Lynching, I will discuss more about Frazier's family and the most surprising thing I've ever seen in a census. Then Zelda and I will talk about the villains in depth. Who were they? what happened to them. And then we get into the heroes, Ida B. Wells and Lillian Clayton Jewett. This is an amazing episode. I know I'm tooting my own horn, but I hope you enjoy it. So how does she tie in with the family? How does she meet up with Frazier? Dr. Baker was one of 12 children born to Maryland Leon Baker and his wife, Piccola Williams in South Carolina. Good on them. In a townless yeah, a lot of kids in a town less than 15 miles where Frazier was lynched. Wow. In the documentary, she recounted a story about walking with her father, Maryland, near her ancestors' abandoned land and asking, tell me something about Uncle Frazier. Maryland responded, well, honey, it's a long, sad story. What I find impressive is that the story was passed on by his nieces and nephews. He had no children to pass along his story. No grandchildren, but his brother's family continued to pass on that tale, so it would not be forgotten. Who was Frazier's brother? Now, as you know, Zelda, when people talk about their great aunts and uncles, they're usually talking about the siblings of their grandparents. Mm -hmm. Well, technically speaking, that would be your grand aunts and uncles. I don't know anybody who really calls them their grand aunts and uncles, although I'm trying to bring it back with my kids. So far, I'm failing, but I'm trying. (laughs) Um, so I thought Frazier's brother would likely be the father of Maryland based on, you know, how people say they're great, great grandparents. Mm-hmm. However, just based on when Maryland was born in 1916, I knew that was probably unlikely, but I crossed my fingers anyway. And it turns out I was right. Frazier's brother did not end up being the father of Maryland. Mm-hmm. In fact, you see, his father, Oakley Fairchild Baker, was born in 1876, 19 years Frazier's junior. So that would be unlikely, albeit possible. And I was able to locate Oakley in the census in 1880, living with his parents. His father was Isaac Baker, and Isaac was born around 1848, making him nine years older than Frazier. So Isaac couldn't possibly be Frazier's father. However, this led me to believe that Isaac was Frazier's brother, mm-hmm. and he would be his great-grand-uncle. And, you know, great-grand-uncles, a lot of people call those your great-great-uncles, because they, you know, your grandparents are this and your great-grandparents. But technically speaking, that would be accurate. And so it, it makes me think Dr. Festinia knew what she was saying, and she was saying the actual relationships as they go. Um, the 1880 census makes me believe this as well, because Frazier and Isaac probably didn't live very far from each other. They both lived in Effingham, South Carolina, 
Frazier's family was number 92 and Isaac's number 104 of homes visited in that census. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's literally, he's on page 10 and the other brother's on page 11. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure Isaac is his brother. I'm I'm holding that as my theory. I don't have anything to really solidly back it up because I don't have a link between the two officially. But based on everything Dr. Baker said, we're going to go with that. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. So I'm looking, I, I find Oakley in the 1880 census. I'm excited. I look, I'm seeing there's Isaac Baker. Uh, that's the name I'm looking for. But then when I looked closer, I was a little shocked and surprised. There is a first time for everything. And this was a double first for me. Okay. <laughs> Let me explain what I what you typically see in a census record so our listeners can understand what I'm going to share. The census records appear to be a spreadsheet of sorts. You know, after they do a survey of the families, they go and they add to the spreadsheet and mark things off. In 1880, from left to right, it has had information on the street name, the number. Then you get to the meat, the names of the families. Each family is given a number to keep track of who was visited, when. Then the first name listed would be whoever had been designated as the head of household. So if you had a family of seven, and the father was the head of household, he'd be at the top of the list. And then the numbers following would be that whoever else was in the house. So after that comes their race, gender, age, relationship to the head of household. Following that, they recorded occupation. If somebody had an illness or disability in 1880, could they read or write? Did they attend school? And then where were their parents born? And where were they born? And enumerators were given specific instructions on how to ask, who to ask, what to ask, and how to, you know, who to get the information from. And looking at the instructions for the 1880 census, I found no answer to what I discovered with the Isaac Baker household. There's some census where they're very specific. These are the relationships you can use as, as being with the head of household. They might have a specific list that you can use. And, but there was no such list for this one. That's why I was looking for. And that's the important part, because what immediately caught my eye was that the woman listed directly underneath Isaac had a different last name than him. So I was supposing immediately that this was his wife, but that's not what she was listed as. Her name was Susanna Miles. She was 25 to his 32 and under relationship to the head of household, Susanna was listed as his concubine. As his what? Concubine. Huh. So they weren't married. Yeah. No. Okay. Huh. So that, so I, I just wonder if they were like, that was their way of saying they were in a relationship, but they were married. That I, yeah. But I've more often heard paramour used like for stuff like this, but interesting. Yeah. But you never saw that either in the census. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people would lie and say that they were married, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. And that's what gave me a lot of pause like wait what Mm -hmm. because i have never seen concubine in a census before in my life Mm -hmm. and i did a quick search in the 1880 census to see who else was listed as having a concubine Mm -hmm. was this just this one census taker or was this a common designation and the term showed up only two more times both in southern states by the way interesting now after the surprise wore off I looked even closer and was shook. Not only was Susanna Miles listed as Isaac's concubine, Susanna was white. Oh, interesting. 
Now, that's why they couldn't marry. Mm -hmm. He's a black man. She's white. Right. But this is South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that enough people, whether it was themselves who reported to the census taker or others around them, knew that they were living together. And they were in a relation, romantic relationship together. Mm-hmm. Of the two other concubines that I found in the census for 1880, one involved a white couple in South Carolina, the other a white man and a black woman in Georgia. Both would have been considered more acceptable than a black man with a white woman in 1880 South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but Isaac and Susanna had two children. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that they were their children because they were listed as being mulatto. Mm-hmm. So of mixed race. And their children were Oakley and son, Hosiah. I, I was a bit speechless. On the one hand, I think it's great that the couple could seemingly live openly together mm-hmm. in this relationship. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm surprised that the community didn't lynch Isaac mm-hmm. because of his relationship with a white woman. I mean, 18 years later, they lynched his brother just for having the audacity of accepting the position as postmaster. Wow. Now, I'm not sure when Isaac died. I know he must have been alive in 1898 because they mentioned him in the paper. But he was not there in 1900, at least not in the 1900 census in South Carolina. Although Susanna was. I wish I knew what happened to him next, but I imagine his brother's lynching put a spotlight on his living arrangements with Susanna and their children. And after much searching, the only black man named Isaac Baker born in South Carolina, about the right age that I found in the 1900 census lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and worked as a servant for a white family. So it's possible that was him. They left South Carolina after his brother was lynched for fear that he would face the same fate. I have no way of knowing for certain though. However, Susanna still lived in Effingham in 1900, And she had two additional children with the last name Baker, two more of Isaac's children, German Weaver Baker and Roxanna Baker. Although later Roxanna would go by her mother's maiden name and go by Miles after she left home. Susanna died in 1929 at the age of 81. And that's all I have for the Frazier's family, really. But I'm not done yet because now let's get to the villains, the killers of Frazier. So we know what happened to Frazier's wife and children. And it's clear that the tragedy shaped them and their futures. It was also passed down by his brother and his brother's children, though, as I mentioned. I found I still had questions, so I wanted answers. The men accused of lynching Baker, were they from homes of that enslaved people? Did they or their fathers support the Confederacy? Like Byron de la Beckwith's family, were they involved in groups like the Sons of the Confederacy? Not only that, but what transpired after the trial ended and they were freed? Did their communities treat them like pariahs, like the killers of Emmett Till faced, or were they accepted with open arms? So, first thing, I wanted to get into their background. So, who were these men? And by the way, I did find every single one of these men. Oh my gosh. Who went on trial. Wow. So, the men's ages ranged from 17 to 53. The two oldest were Henry Godwin. I've seen it listed as Goodwin. It was not Goodwin. It was Godwin. Oh, okay. And he was 53 and Martin Van Ward, who was 42. Two were in their 30s, Alonzo Rogers and William Albert Webster, 30 and 31 respectively, Charles Joyner, Henry Stokes, Ezra McKnight, and Daniel Moultrie, yeah, and Daniel Moultrie Epps were in their 20s. Three were teenagers. Oscar Kelly was likely 17, 
I mean, he turned 18 that year, but I don't think he was 18 yet. Marianne Clark and Edwin Rogers were 18. Now, while I couldn't find any direct relationships among the men, because I thought maybe they might be related to each other, some of their children married each other or were connected with an indirect relationship. Wow. Like Alonzo Rogers. His nephew was Martin Ward's son-in-law. And so, and later on, some of their children married each other and there was a lot more crossing. I mean, it was a small town after all. Several of the men grew up with no money. Their families were poor or just getting by. Their fathers may have owned land, but not much. Charles Joyner's father was a plantation overseer. Wow. Yeah. So we know he was surrounded by slavery and what all that meant. He, he didn't grow up with wealth, but he grew up wealth adjacent. <laughs> so while his family didn't have slaves, his father was in charge of slaves. So the men who didn't grow up with wealth also didn't grow up in families that were enslavers. Webster's father had some wealth, but I found no evidence of him enslaving any humans. Now, there were two that came from families of enslavers, Henry Godwin and Ezra McKnight. But both men were born after the Civil War ended. Ezra's father enslaved 19 in 1860. So it's, it's, he didn't have just a couple like that would, I mean, that's not even good either, but he, he had several. Daniel Moultrie Epps had a grandfather who had a rather large plantation with 59 enslaved in 1860. Marion Clark's grandfather was a wealthy lawyer who enslaved five. And Oscar Kelly's grandfather, Simon Kelly, died in 1852 with a good-sized estate that was distributed amongst his children, along with 13 he enslaved. Wow. Yeah, it kind of gives you a picture of where they came from. At least four of the men had fathers who were Confederate soldiers. Joyner, McKnight, Epson, Webster. Interestingly enough, three of the men were part of what was called the Manning Guard in Company D. And there was even an article about them on January 1898, right before the events. About these are, it had a list of every man who was part of this Manning Guard. Oh, wow. And I, and I think this was kind of like an early form of the um, South Carolina National Guard. Mm -hmm. But I, I couldn't find anything about the Manning Guard. But the men that were in that were Charles Joyner, Edwin Rogers, and Oscar Kelly. So... That's a little background on who the men were, but what happened after? Well, those who weren't yet married did marry and had children and grandchildren, every single one of them. And several of them held a certain degree of prominence in their community. In other words, the actions they were accused of had zero negative impact on their lives. Wow. I mean, their actions negatively impacted Lavinia and her children, mm -hmm. but they faced zero consequence for what wow. they did not even from their community wow well i don't have anything to share i don't have something to share for every single one of the men i do for some and i'll start from oldest to, and go down to the youngest man after 1898 henry godwin became a member of a local lodge and he served on the grand jury in 1904 he was also and this this just me so much he was also an election manager Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't the only one who would be an election manager. I mean, it just so disturbs me. Martin Van Ward was one in 1902, 1904, and 1905. 
Wow. Because those are the men you want having running an election. Oh, my God. Now, Martin Van Wart, I didn't have a whole lot on him, but I learned that his son, Leroy, became a police officer. Oh, my God. Yeah. It just keeps getting worse. Oh, it does. And oh, I have more that gets worse. Wow. William Allen Webster had several articles about him celebrating his long life and every major wedding anniversary. They were married. He and his wife were married for almost 69 years before he died. Wow. I mean, they were married for 69 years when he died. They almost made their next anniversary. I did find, though, one interesting fact about his background. His grandparents were originally from Connecticut. Huh. And they moved to the South in 18, by 1820. Huh. So maybe that's why they didn't enslave people. But the attitude still yeah. stuck. Alonzo Rogers at one time was the county road commissioner. And even more disturbing to me, he was a public school teacher. Oh, my God. Not only that, but he was active in his church because, you know, Jesus has him in his hands. Not only was he a deacon, but he served as a superintendent of the New Zion Sunday School for 25 years and taught Bible classes for 30. Wow. Now, granted, this is based on his obituary from 1958. So those roles were held long after the lynching, but still. Yeah. Wow. It's not like they were paying any kind of reparations to the Baker family. Right. Wow. These were men who just kept moving on and zero consequence. Charles Joyner continued to be problematic. I found this in the Yorkville Inquirer on October 8th, 1907. So this is close to 10 years after the lynching. Mr. Charles Joyner was arrested Wednesday night in the Cotton Mill Village by... Officer Barton, having come here, it is stated, for the avowed purpose of killing a man named Threat, who works in the mills. Oh, my God. Yeah. Joyner was armed with a shotgun and a pistol, which were taken from him. Mr. Barton brought his prisoner into town, where he said he could give bail, but after getting here, Joyner managed to elude the officer and make his escape. Wow. So he got a taste for killing, and he was still in that mode. Wow. Several years later, his son, Charles Joyner Jr., would also show signs of problematic behavior. As I found in this article, the Lancaster News on July 4th, 1913. The headline is, Robbed Child of Long Curly Hair. Magistrate J.W. McElveen of Evergreen was called here yesterday to sit on a case on that of little eight-year-old D.R.C. Thomas against Dupre Seymour and Charles Joyner two young men of about 18 and 20 years old, respectively. The charges made in the magistrate's court was that Seymour and Joyner had taken young Thomas, who had quite a beautiful head of curly hair, and that they clipped his locks with a clipping machine like that used for clipping hair from horses. Magistrate McElveen bound Seymour and Joyner ever to the higher court for trial. This is the first case of the kind ever up in this county, and the progress and outcome will be watched with no little interest. I have to tell you, I think there's stuff going on between the lines there because, well, cutting off a a little boy's hair would probably Mm. not be enough to send the kids to the magistrate in that time and place. So there's probably more to the story. I just couldn't find any more about the story. Right. No, I'm just giving you my opinion anyway. It was just that I, that it feels like there were things that perhaps were not fit to print. You know what? Now that you say it, I think you're right. 
because that does seem a little small to be mm-hmm. moving up to a higher court. Right. There's got to have been a lot more. Mm-hmm. So now next to up is Daniel Moultrie Epps. Now he was a more recent arrival in Lake City at the time of the lynching, having just moved there in 1895. Like Alonzo, he was involved with his church. This one, a Methodist. Ah, uh, yes, a pillar of the community, no doubt. Yes. Even serving on the board of stewards for a time. At one point, he was a Lake City City Council mayor pro tem. Wow. In 1940, he ran for office for the U.S. House of Representatives. Wow. But he lost in the primary. Wow. No one used the death of Fraser B. Baker against him in the campaign. Oh, my God. Henry Stokes, who was the supposed ringleader, like Alonzo Rogers, was a Sunday school superintendent. And he also was a trustee for the local public schools. Even more disturbing to me is at the time of his arrest, he was a former United States deputy marshal. Oh, my God. Yeah. (sighs) Oscar Kelly. Now, with Oscar, I believe I found him in the 1920 census where he was an inmate at the U.S. prison in Atlanta, Georgia. Luckily, the National Archives has a name index for Atlanta prisoners from 1902 to 1921. And I found out that Oscar was there for violating interstate commerce laws. Huh. To learn more, I'd have to request records. And and there could be so many different things with the interstate commerce laws there. So I'm not even sure what he exactly did. Mm-hmm. What years were those? What years was he? Um, this was in 1920. Prohibition? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Cause it, but Prohibition, when did Prohibition officially start? I'm looking that up right now because I don't know off the top of my head. Um, Cause that, 1920 to 1933. So I, I doubt it because he was in, he was already in there when the um, census was taken around April. Okay. Because, yeah, it started possible. January 17th, 1920. But if he's already in it's there, possible. it could be. He probably got prosecuted in November or December. So, yeah. Crazy. But I couldn't find any newspaper articles about why he was in there. Like father, like son. Well, this isn't like father, like son. This is one of the ones who was accused. But didn't. But he was yeah, still a, a terrible person. Right. Okay. I'm just saying he wasn't like his father. Well, he might have been like his father. I don't know. But. <laughs> Marion Clark was one of the 18-year-olds at the lynching. I learned something else. In December 1897, so three months beforehand, he became the editorial manager of the Lake City Times. Oh, wow. Oh, and postmaster alert. (gasps) There's another one? Yeah. His grandfather, Joseph Clark, served as postmaster for Lake City from 1883 to 1885 and 1889 to 1890. And I found an article about him in the Manning Times. It's a paper in Manning, South Carolina, on August 14th, 1907. And I thought I would share some of it. Okay. I'm excited. Because this will, you'll, you'll see how much consequence they really faced. Oh, God. We have a letter from Mr. Marion M. Clark, now a prominent citizen of Los Angeles, California, and who has demonstrated what can be done if there is the right kind of stuff in the boy. Wow. Marion Clark was connected with a newspaper at Lake City about the time of the post office trouble at that place. Oh my God. That's post all office they say about trouble. That. Wow. Trouble. Yeah. Wow. And I don't even mention that he was accused of being part of it. Wow. I mean, he went on trial. It's not like. Because he was indicted for it. So. Yeah. 
Wow. And when the Spanish-American War broke out, he enlisted and went to the front. Later, he joined the regulars and after some service contracted tuberculosis, was placed in a hospital in the city of Washington, and his arm was saved from amputation through the kindly interest of the late Mrs. McKinley. Oh, you're kidding me. President McKinley's wife. Yes. Who became acquainted with Marion while visiting the sick. And makes me wonder, did she know about his involvement? I don't think she would have. Yeah. She just saw a soldier who was injured. But Mm -hmm. it makes you wonder, what would she have thought about this young man she thought was a a good soldier Mm -hmm. and all this if she knew what he had been indicted for. Mm-hmm. But I, I was, oh, I saw that. I'm like, Mrs. McKinley. Oh my gosh. He was sent from Washington to a government hospital in Arizona and finally was honorably discharged. He secured employment with the Los Angeles street railway and worked his way up to be superintendent. The young man has an ambitious nature and now he is president of Crescent gold, silver and copper company capitalized at $1 million. He writes us, we have very fine mining property located in Riverside County, California, comprising five mining claims or 103 acres on which we have had about 500 feet of development work done in the form of shafts and of one tunnel. And he keeps going on about how much all this stuff is worth. It it sounded like he was trying to pitch people to invest in his company. The rest of the letter. Oh, wow. So. His venture of land development and speculation with this Crescent Gold, Silver, and Copper Company failed. Good. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1910, he was married and had a daughter. His wife divorced him, and his company failed all before 1916. In 1916, he remarried and went into the insurance business. In 1940, he and his wife were renting a place at $38 a month. Wow. In Los Angeles. So if he had money at one point, it was all gone because he couldn't afford to own a property yet anymore. Um, And I love how that article, though, (laughs) cracks me up. He says he's a prominent city citizen of Los Angeles, California. Well, not not according to Angelino. (laughs) They probably because a prominent citizen, if you put their name in the paper, they would pop up. Right. Uh There was nothing. It's like he didn't even exist. Ah, good. Okay. So that's the men indicted for the death of Fraser B. Baker. I mean, it it makes me mad every time I look at the stuff and see, like, even going down their family tree, nobody has it on their family tree. I wonder if they even know how much of their families know this. I don't even know what I would do if I found out my father, or one of my great-grandfathers was one of those men. Could you even imagine? Like, no. And, wow. and I'm sure I had some great grandparents who did some awful things mm-hmm. back be, at the time of slavery and stuff. But <laughs> I don't know the chef to go back that far in my family. <laughs> so. I don't know. Well, that's why I was thinking. I'm like, do I have to go back that far? Probably not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My um, niece but... asked me if any of my brothers had ever been in jail. And I'm like, that's their story to tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. In other words, yes. But I'm not going to tell you which one. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go to the heroes. As I mentioned at the top, I decided I want to learn more about everybody like Ida B. Wells. And she really, I've always admired 
her. She's amazing. And, you know, last year they named Congress Boulevard in Chicago after Ida B. Wells. So it's now Ida B. Wells Boulevard. I did know that. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I started off in college as a journalism major. Um, I loved her. I I did. I remember in high school I did um, a term paper on muckrakers, and she was part of the article. I mean, so she really was an amazing woman, journalist, and activist. Um, Before I... And I did look at her tree, and we're going to discuss a little bit about that. But I wanted to share some background about her, more so than what you got into. Most of this comes from Wikipedia, as well as an article written by her great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster. Now, Ida Bell Wells was an early leader for civil rights in the United States. Her mark was made through her investigative journalism, as well as her activism. In fact, I almost wonder if Rosa Parks took a cue from Ida when she refused to give up her bus seat in Montgomery, Alabama. Because in 1884, Ida, a school teacher at the time, refused to give up her train seat for a white woman in the first class ladies' car. And moved. And she was asked to move to the smoking car and she said, no, I paid for this ticket, I'm going to stay. The conductor and two men physically removed her from the train due to her civil disobedience. Later, Ida would write an article about her treatment for a black church weekly newspaper, The Living Way. The article got a lot of attention, and Ida sued the railroad with the help of a black attorney. However, Ida soon learned that her attorney was being paid off by the railroad, so she fired him, and she hired a white attorney. With that attorney, she won a $500 award. However, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned the decision basically saying she purposely did what she did to make a claim against the railroad. Yeah, because she could have predicted that that was going to happen. What? Yeah. So mean. The decision from the Tennessee Supreme Court devastated Ida. She responded, I felt so disappointed because I had hoped such great things from my suit for my people. Oh God, is there no justice in this land for us? The incident on the train would spur Ida to become a journalist and write what she saw. While she continued to teach... For a time, she wrote weekly articles for The Living Way and had an editorial position for The Evening Star, a small Memphis journal. Five years later, Ida would become co-owner and editor of the black newspaper The Free Speech and Headlight. When the Memphis School Board became aware of her articles criticizing the conditions at black schools, she was fired. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Then in 1892, three black men, Thomas Moss Sr., William Stewart, and Calvin McDowell were lynched by a mob of 75 men in Memphis. Why? Well, law enforcement came up with a reason to justify the behavior. Ultimately, the quote-unquote issue was a white grocer was unhappy that a black grocery store owned by Thomas Moss was giving him competition across the street. Stewart and McDowell were employees at that store, and the store was called People's Grocery. Ida was friends with Thomas Moss. In fact, she was the godmother of his one-year-old daughter, Maureen. This made Ida angry, sad, and she just plain fed up. So she wrote in her paper that all black people needed to leave Memphis, if this is how they were going to be treated. It was this incident that would lead her to focus her journalistic efforts on bringing lynchings to light. Two months after the lynching of Moss, Stewart, and McDowell, a white mob ransacked her newspaper offices after she published an editorial in her paper refuting 
quote, that old Fred Bear lie that Negro men will rape white women. If Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Oh, shots fired. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, it was two white newspapers that encouraged the destruction of her newspaper and herself. Of course. Yeah. Through editorials. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read one of them. From the Daily Commercial on May 25th, 1892. The fact that a black scoundrel, referring to Ida, is allowed to live and utter such loathsome and repulsive calumnies is a volume of evidence as to the wonderful patience of Southern whites. But we've had enough of it. The other paper was the Evening Scimitar that published the following later that same day. Patience under such circumstances is not a virtue. If the... And and I'm changing the wording here, just so you know. If the black people, and that's not what they said, (laughs) themselves do not apply the remedy without delay, it will be the duty of those whom he has attacked to tie the wretch who utters these calumnies to a stake at the intersection of Main and Madison Streets. Brand him in the forehead with a hot iron and perform upon him a surgical operation with a pair of tailor's shears. Oh my God. It was just really bad. The mob destroyed the newspaper offices and everything in them. Ida was in New York City at the time, thank goodness. She never returned to Memphis. She had a partner with the newspaper and he fled. Creditors ended up seizing the offices and sold the assets. Wow. Even the man who first established the newspaper, he had no part in the newspaper anymore, but he established it. Reverend Taylor Nightingale was targeted. A group of white men assaulted him and at gunpoint forced him to write a letter of retraction to Ida's editorial. Wow. And as a side note, because of all their destruction, there are no copies of her paper that remain. Wow. Ida would remain in New York City and conduct her research on lynching from there for the next several months. There's a lot more that I could go into, but I won't because, I mean, she could be her own story. Absolutely. Her own podcast. Yeah. But over the next several years, she would publish pamphlets of her findings on lynchings and even went on speaking tours in Great Britain. By the time of the Baker lynching, Ida was very well known and respected for her work and her knowledge. And as it was largely due to her efforts that the men were even prosecuted for lynching Fraser B. Baker. Wow. By this time, Ida had left New York and lived in Chicago. While she would always work towards ending lynching, she also used her voice and journalistic skills to advance civil rights, suffrage, and school desegregation. Owen Zelda, she was in Chicago during the World's Fair in 1893. <laughs> At the same time, one of our other subjects was there, Dr. H.H. Holmes. (laughs) I'm glad she had a different place to live. I'm so glad to. However, she, along with Frederick Douglass and others, led an effort for black people to boycott the fair due to the lack of representation of black achievements at the fair. Mm -hmm. She helped write a pamphlet that was distributed at the fair titled The Reason Why. The Colored American is not in the world's Columbian Exposition. Wow. Good on her. Mm-hmm. Yep. 1893 would also be the year that she would accept a position at the Chicago Conservator and make Chicago her permanent residence. So that was just a short summary of who she was. Now let's take a quick look at her family and background. So Ida was born into slavery at the beginning of the Civil War in Holly Springs, Mississippi. 
We keep going back to Mississippi. Can we stop that? <laughs> Her father, James Madison Wells, mother Lizzie Warrington, and a brother died of yellow fever when Ida was just 16. As her firstborn child, Ida felt the responsibility of watching over her younger siblings, ranging in age from 2 to 13. After the funeral, though, friends and relatives felt the siblings should be separated and sent to foster homes. Ida adamantly disagreed and got a job teaching at a school in Holly Springs. While she worked, her grandmother and other relatives helped watch her youngest siblings, who were still too young to attend school. Around 1883, Ida and two of her siblings left Mississippi and moved in with her aunt, Fanny Butler, in Memphis. Now, I told you what happened with her professionally, but let's get personal. On June 27, 1895, at the Bethel AME Church in Chicago, Ida married widower and father of two sons, Ferdinand Lee Barnett. Ferdinand was an attorney originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and founding editor of the Chicago Conservator, where she had been working for the past two years. Nice. By the way, he was only the third black man to be admitted to the Illinois bar. Oh, wow. And he became Illinois' first black assistant state's attorney in 1896. Wow. Yeah. And like his wife, he was active in efforts against lynching and civil rights. Ida and Ferdinand had four children. Charles Akid, Herman Colsat, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Jr., and Alfreda Margarita. I like that name. That's fun. It it is kind of fun, isn't it? Daughter Ida never married. For years, she worked at her father's law office as his secretary until his death in 1938. She then helped her sister Alfreda raise her children after the death of Alfreda's husband in 1945. Ida Jr. and Alfreda edited their mom's autobiography a book that would be published in 1970, 39 years after their mother's death. Son Herman attended the University of Illinois. I found him in the 1915 student directory, which I thought was pretty cool. Like his father, Herman became a lawyer and worked at his father's law office for many years. After his parents died, he and his wife Gertrude moved to Los Angeles, California. I found them in the 1940 census with Gertrude working as a maid for a private family and Herman as a technician on a WPA project. By 1950, Herman worked as a lawyer again, now for the state of California as a state interviewer. Herman was married twice. His first wife was Fiona Davis, marrying around 1918, and they had a son, Herman Jr. They were divorced by 1930, although Fiona claimed she was widowed. Their son would live with his mother and remained in Chicago. I do want to discuss Ida's parents because it's an interesting mix of information, some of which Wikipedia has a little wrong. Hmm. So Father James Madison Wells was the son of Peggy Chairs. She was an enslaved woman originally from North Carolina, and the last name is spelled C-H-E-A-I-R-S. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so that was his mother, and his father was Morgan Brown Wells, Peggy's enslaver. Oh my gosh. Yep. At least that's who I believe was his father based on the evidence I found. And just to explain, I mean, this is documented that he was the Peggy's. He was the result of an enslaver and his mother, Peggy. That is well documented. Mm -hmm. But nobody really talks about who that was. Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe it was Morgan Brown Wells. I also believe that Morgan was the father of at least three more of Peggy's children. 
Fanny, Alfred, and Henry. In the 1850 slave schedule, Morgan was listed as enslaving five, a female aged 30, males aged 10, 6, 4, and 2. Basically, Morgan had created two families, his white one with his wife and their three children, and then his slave family. By the 1860 slave schedule, Peggy was still the only adult female on the plantation, and there were six children, quite possibly all of her own children with Morgan. But I, I'm, I'm not positive on that. According to Wikipedia, James Wells's father, so Morgan, brought him to Holly Springs to be a carpenter's apprentice when he was 18, around 1858. And this was a few years before Morgan died. I believe he died around 1862, 1863. Carpentry was a skill that James learned well. But while he was enslaved, he didn't get to keep his wages. They would go to his new enslaver, architect Spires Bowling. Because that's who took, who enslaved them after Morgan died. However, carpentry would be a skill that he would use to provide for his family at the end of slavery. Ida's great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster, wrote an article titled Continuing My Great-Grandmother's Fight. In it, she mentions that in 1870, now with the right to vote, James and his friends would discuss politics around Ida. And James proudly voted for the very first time. However, he voted for a different candidate than the one his former enslaver suggested. This angered Mr. Bowling and led James to lose his home and carpentry tools Mm. as retribution. Wow. But James, yeah, but James rebuilt. From this, Ida learned that you must do what is right despite the consequences. Wow. Yeah. Ida's mother's experience in slavery was different than her husband's. Elizabeth, or Lizzie Warrington, was born around 1844 in Virginia one of 10 children born on a plantation. She was sold away and sent to Mississippi and was enslaved by Spires Bowling, where James Wells was enslaved after the death of his father, Morgan Wells. At the end of the Civil War, Lizzie tried unsuccessfully to find her family. Mm. Now, the other prominent figure that that you mentioned and that came out of the Baker tragedy was a white woman from Boston, Lillian Clayton Jewett. But who was she? And was hers an act of kindness and passion or an early example of white savior complex? So to learn more, I turned to an article I found in the Historical Journal of Massachusetts titled Lillian Clayton Jewett and the Rescue of the Baker Family, 1899 to 1900, written by Roger K. Hux in 1991. And according to Hux, not much was known about Jewett at the time, nor since. Some newspaper articles at the time described her as a 24-year-old aspiring novelist with one book, a romance, Life's Passionate Guest. (laughs) One article said she was a daughter of a wealthy grain merchant who lived on Beacon Street. Yet another said she had brothers from Brockton who were boot blacks. Well, I made it my mission to figure out who she was and who her family was. But before I tell you what I discovered, I should probably explain why she became a prominent figure in the story of the Baker family. Because until July 16, 1899, no one had heard of her or knew who she was. But on that night, she stood before an African-American audience at Boston's St. Paul Baptist Church 
an audience that came there in part to hear her speak about Fraser V. Baker and his family. She was introduced by Reverend Benjamin W. Ferris, whom she met after discussing the lynching with her black maid, and the maid arranged an introduction afterwards. During his introduction of Jewett, he described her as the next Harriet Beecher Stowe. During Jewett's speech, she discussed the horrors of lynching and offered to head to Charleston to bring the Baker family home up to Boston. The crowd supported the idea and many people stayed after to meet Lillian. While the crowd at St. Paul supported this notion and it made news in the papers, not everyone was pleased with her pronouncement. The Colored National League thought they should handle any plans for bringing the Baker family to Boston and felt that it shouldn't be handled by, quote, some chit of a white girl who sprang up overnight, end quote. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame them. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, she was very good at centering herself. Yes. Part of the response came from suspicion of this white woman, quote, unquote, savior. Mm-hmm. But the other problem seemed to be based on economic status, which I found interesting. Southern black Bostonians supported Jewett's plan. And they supported her, while Boston's black upper class did not, and even accused Jewett of doing it to make money. And I I almost wonder if it also had more to do with education on that, too. Mm -hmm. The upper class was more suspicious. They knew a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the others, they're hearing all this wonderful stuff that she's saying, and they're like, oh, yes, please. Mm -hmm. So this resulted in a lot of back and forth between groups and people to decide what would happen. But on... August 4th, Lillian decided to head to Charleston, South Carolina, and didn't tell anybody she was going. (laughs) When she arrived, she met with the family, bought them new clothes, and convinced them to take train with her up to Boston, as you you mentioned earlier. But here's the thing. Lillian Jewett had a little bit of money, you know, enough to buy the train tickets and buy them clothes. But she didn't have a lot of money, not nearly enough to support the family, So her impulsive actions lacked any sort of planning or fundraising beyond what had been done in South Carolina to help the family while they were there recovering. In fact, Lillian was one of the first people in the country to ever declare bankruptcy under a new federal bankruptcy law in 1898. She filed at the end of August 1898. Wow. To be exact. Anyhow, on their way to Boston, after a brief stop in New York City to rest, Lillian and the Baker family made an appearance in Providence, Rhode Island then Boston, and followed last by Maine. The appearances drew in large crowds, and Reverend Ferris and others hoped it would bring in funds to help the Baker family. It did not. While 4,000 people came to see the Baker family in Boston, only $200 was donated. They only got $35 in Maine. I mean, that's substantial compared to today, but not enough to support the family. And there continued to be conflicts with Lillian. After the initial appearance... As you you mentioned, Lillian and Lavinia Baker had a falling out and never spoke again. And I think it has to do with what happened during some of these things. Like she would put forward one of the kids and go, oh, look at him. Look what they did to him. Mm -hmm. Kind of treating them like a sideshow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Eventually, though, $1,200 was what was raised with the help of William Lloyd Garrison Jr. to buy the home for the family in the Chelsea area. Despite all the conflicts Lillian faced with those involved, Lillian threw herself into anti-lynching efforts. Well, at least she appeared to do so, that is. She helped form several anti-lynching leagues and went on a speaking tour. In 1899, she was received warmly at the National Black Baptist Convention held in Nashville that fall. 
but not everyone liked her or wanted her in their town. In fact, um, the next year in 1900, by that point, they were sick of her and they didn't, they didn't even want her to speak at their convention, wow. for example. In 1900, another lynching made the news nationally, the Robert Charles Massacre. On the evening of July 23rd, Robert and his roommate, Robert Pierce, were sitting on a porch in a predominantly white New Orleans neighborhood. How dare they? Three policemen approached them and asked why they were there. Apparently, Charles stood up, which the police took as an aggressive move. And Officer August Mora grabbed him, and there was a back and forth. When Charles resisted, Mora hit him with his billy club. Mm. So Charles pulled a gun. Oh, my gosh. And so did Mora. And they exchanged shots. Both men ended up being shot in the leg and both lived. Charles went to his house and a few hours later, police approached his home at 3 a.m. Charles ended up coming out of his home with a rifle and fired on the officers. He ended up killing the police captain and officer Peter Lamb. And he made his escape soon after. Wow. To make a very long story shorter, a manhunt ensued. As part of the hunt for Robert Charles, a white mob ended up forming out of anger that how dare this black man do this. And it led to attacks against black people throughout New Orleans. Oh my gosh. Yeah. On the 27th of July, Charles was found and shot by a police volunteer. But that didn't satisfy the police or the mob who ended up shooting him hundreds of times after he was dead and beating the body at the end of the riots 28 people were dead and over 50 injured mostly black residents of new orleans so now lillian jewett had another project to focus on and another area to focus her efforts and this made her anti-lynching crusade even more public and white southerners were not pleased with her on a visit to richmond virginia lillian received multiple death threats and had to flee Soon after she left in a quote-unquote fashionable neighborhood of Richmond, Monroe Heights, she was hung in effigy with the likeness of her dressed in black and white and a placard around the neck with the following, Lillian Clayton Jewett, South Hater and Black Pert People's Worst Enemy. A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall perish. The crowd surrounding the effigy bemoaned the fact that Jewett wasn't really hanging from the noose. Wow. Yeah. Now, after doing some digging, I was able to find out who Lillian was and a possible hint as to why she stood up. I do think, though, in large part, she wanted attention. Mm -hmm. But I do think there was a small part that her efforts were a little deeper than just enjoying the attention she was getting. First, I had a hard time finding Lillian. And then I discovered why. She was actually born Agnes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. When she was born, her name was Agnes Lillian Jewett. And she was born on June 7th, 1870. Her parents were Charles William Henry Jewett and Annie Lucretia Clark. And she was born in Pepperell, Massachusetts. Her father was a shoemaker like his father before him, but her parents weren't particularly wealthy. In fact, in 1870, they owned no land at all. They had a home though, that they probably likely rented. And I don't believe they were in a happy marriage either. Hmm. And here's a clue why she might have been seeking attention. Lillian was the middle child of six (laughs) (laughs) Um, with her siblings, Hattie Elizabeth, Frank Otis, Alfonso Clark, Clarence Willard, and Ralph Purley. By 1900, her parents were no longer together, although I doubt they divorced. 
They no longer lived together and never would again. In fact, Anne's obituary in 1916 made it sound like she was a widow, but Charles was very much alive. Uh-huh. Wow. I was unable to figure out where the name Clayton came from with Lillian. I mean, even her mother's main name is Clark. I mean, there's no Clayton anywhere in the family that I could find. Hmm. And her birth records clearly listed her first name as Agnes and her middle as Lillian. So it's clear it somehow got changed at some point, maybe to make her sound more official or something. I don't know. But at the age of 25, she moved to Virginia to attend Holland's College, but withdrew soon after due to illness. Claims would come out at the height of her popularity from a Virginia doctor that he treated Lillian and that he treated her for recurrent episodes of mania. Oh, wow. Which could be also the motivation Mm -hmm. that especially, I mean, that was not something that had medication to treat back then. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that leads to grandiosity. Mm -hmm. And I could see that. And she even mentioned at one point that a character in her book was inspired by someone she met while a patient at a Boston mental hospital. Mm. Did find an interesting article involving Lillian years after the Baker family came to Boston And this was in the Los Angeles Herald in 1909 that I thought I would share. Hmm. You'll note that nobody mentions the Baker family in this article. So either they didn't know and her name just wasn't very well known on the West Coast or they just chose to ignore it. Okay. The sudden disappearance from this city yesterday of Miss Lillian Clayton Jewett, author, has created somewhat of a stir. For a number of months, Miss Jewett has engaged in the preparation of a 98,000 word novel entitled Manishtana, employing as her manuensis, basically literary assistant, Mrs. Lillian McMillan, assistant in the Chamber of Commerce headquarters. The author, it is said, owes Mrs. McMillan for considerable work. She also holds a bill of $1,400 for expenses such as typewriter rental, the employment of an assistant, and fines due on books which the author kept out of the library overtime. Mm-hmm. This morning, Mrs. McMillan, accompanied by Deputy Constable Ed Williams, went to the home of Miss Jewett's mother and brother and inquired as to the daughter's whereabouts. They were told Miss Jewett had left last night for San Francisco. Miss Jewett is said to have published one book, quote, something on the Eleanor Glenn order, end quote, Mrs. McMillan says. The book on which she has been working while here is a story of the time of Christ. The name is said to mean, why is this night unlike the other night? Miss Jewett is a tall, wan-looking woman. Since coming here, she took treatment at both the Woodruff and Pike sanitariums. Oh my. Yeah, the proprietor says that they have not been paid for treatments given. Mm. She wanted to get the 43 chapters of this book finished so that Houghton and Mifflin of Boston could have it about the first of the year, said Mrs. McMillan today. There are 10 chapters yet to finish. I contracted to complete the first copy and then took up also her second copy. And it goes on to say that basically Mrs. McMillan was owed three to $400 for the work she had done. Wow. And she hadn't been paid yet. And that's why she got the authorities involved. And I never saw a resolution to this. I don't think she ever returned to Los Angeles. Wow. For the next several years, there were some articles, not that many, indicating that Lillian was still speaking about lynching and other issues. But then just as suddenly as she appeared, she disappeared out of the public eye by 1920. 
And according to cemetery records, Lillian died in Cranston, Rhode Island. And here's a trigger warning, so just skip ahead 15 seconds. At 61, she apparently committed suicide. Mm. So it's clear she had a history of mental illness. Mm -hmm. Let's discuss her family a little more. I hope to find her motivation beyond having a mental illness, beyond being a middle child. And I think I might have. We'll start with her father. He was born in 1836 and enlisted to fight in the Civil War, serving in Company B of the 11th Maine Infantry, which is part of the Army of the Potomac under General McClellan at the beginning of the war. Charles only served one year, discharged for disability in September 1863. At first, he followed his father's lead and became a shoemaker. But in the 1900 census, he was working as a hotel keeper, which is likely like a hotel manager, I would think. This is this is Lillian's dad. Lillian's dad. Okay. Now, um, Charles Jewett, who's her dad, his parents were David W. Jewett and Catherine Emma Skelton, the daughter of Reverend Thomas Skelton, an 1806 graduate of Harvard. Wow. So when David died in 1880, he left a will. And it was kind of interesting. He had multiple different bank accounts at different banks. Hmm. At least three or four. Um, to Charles, he left his account at the Home Savings Bank in Boston. It doesn't say how much money was in there, though. Hmm. David's brother Lyman got an account from a different bank. And then he had a different account that was to pay all his bills. <laughs> wow. And then Lyman was to inherit the rest, anything that was left over from that account. And Lyman also got all the furniture and was made the executor of the estate. Wow. Now, once I dug into different newspaper articles, I discovered something that explained in part what likely motivated Lillian. It turns out that her grandfather, David Jewett, was an abolitionist who was active in the movement to free the enslaved. Okay. Mm -hmm. I found a mention of him in an 1852 issue of The Liberator, a weekly abolitionist newspaper published in Boston by William Lloyd Garrison. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it is. It was his son, William Lloyd Garrison Jr., who raised the funds to buy the Baker family their home in Boston. Okay. We just came full circle. It's all clicking now. Yep. So, despite all the work done by Ida B. Wells Barnett, and even the attention that Jewett gave to the issue, no anti-lynching bill would become law until March 2022. With the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, the first attempt at an anti-lynching bill was the Dyer Anti-Lynching Bill sponsored by Leonida Dyer, a Missouri Republican from St. Louis. It passed, and I think this was 1918, it passed the House, but the Southern Democrats and the Senate blocked the bill by justifying lynchings as a necessity because they were a response to crime, such as rape. Oh my God. Yeah. And they also said it should be up to the states. Does that part sound familiar? Wow. The tactics haven't changed. Quick history lesson. The Southern Democrats of the 1920s are the Republicans of today. Several more attempts would be made over the next several decades. And every time their efforts were thwarted by Southern senators. It was never Northern senators, never Western senators. It was always a Southern senator. Even in 2020, it was thwarted by a Southern senator. So the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act took two years to pass. The House easily passed the bill in 2020 with a vote of 410 to 4. And the no's were, because I think everybody should know who voted no against that act. Ted Yoho of Florida, 
Thomas Massey of Kentucky, Louis Gomert of Texas, and Justin Amish, uh, Amish of Michigan. And all of them are just jackasses. Well, yeah. However, Senator Rand Paul blocked its passage in the Senate. Well, he's a well-known asshat. Well, he really is, but Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, a southern state, he blocked its passage by arguing the bill's language was too broad. After changing the language, the bill passed the House again in February 2022. This time, the vote was 422 to 3, with Chip Roy of Texas, Andrew Clyde of Georgia, and again, Thomas Massey of Kentucky opposing. Wow. One week later, on March 7th, 2022, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act passed with unanimous consent in the Senate. Yay! Yay! President Joseph Biden signed it into law on March 29th, 2022. And that was the family tree of Fraser B. Baker and those involved at his death and afterward. Wow. Oy. Wow. Yeah. This is why there needs to be consequences for actions. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I mean, in most lynching cases, a lot of people would get away with it, either mm-hmm. through being declared that, oh, well, they're innocent. They, you know, that black person deser- deserved it. Mm-hmm. Or hung juries, mm-hmm. like um, with Baker. The most disappointing thing to me was learning that there were zero consequences for the men afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you had the one who ended up prison briefly, but that had nothing to do with how his community thought about him. Yeah. Or anything that was, yeah. At least he, I mean, I'm just glad he got some prison time, but yeah, it's just awful. Oh man, you know, um, I'm really glad we did this family though, because mm-hmm. I think we're really quick as a nation to sweep stuff under the rug and also try and mm-hmm. point out the happy ending, right? Like, okay, everything turned out okay eventually, and this is not right. a situation where everything turned out okay eventually. You know, no. um, this was a family that was absolutely destroyed. Um, it was. And, and there were no consequences for the people who did it. And that, you know, we keep working toward a better day. And this just reminds us we have, we still have a lot of work to do. So we do. And some of the stuff that, you know, we're still seeing some of the same things yep. that happened back then today. Yep. The same excuse making to justify violence against a black person mm-hmm. when there's no justification for it mm-hmm. at all, mm-hmm. other than the person literally being black, mm-hmm. being different. So, yeah, these stories need to be told so people don't forget. Mm-hmm. And that yep. hopefully someday we'll learn from them. But part of the problem is you have to be willing to listen and willing to learn. I have to tell you, I'm fading really fast. Um, yeah, we're, we're done. But I did want to say this was a really good episode and I am so glad we did it. And I will never get asked to record on a school night because <laughs> dang, I'm tired. Who are we doing next? We're going to be finally, finally sharing our crossover episode with Cutoff Jeans covering Georgia Tan. Oh, great. It's been seeing, waiting for me to finish edit it for years no for months um and it will be done so we have a lot coming where murder and family meet if you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family we would love it if you would subscribe rate and review this podcast 
You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.